0: Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal! Hey everybody, I'm Lizzie.
1: And I'm Joe, we're from the band Hailstorm.
0: And you're listening to Middle Up Your Podcast.
1: Welcome to Metal of Your Podcast. My name is Clint Wells, and today is a special bonus episode about my project, Lunar Satan. I've been wanting to do an episode like this ever since the record came out on Christmas Day. Well, it's Christmas Day for the Kickstarters. It was January 1st, 2021. For all the normal folks out there, and uh, which means that, yes, it is qualifiable for... Metal record of the year for all of you. Just keep that in mind. But I have wanted to do an an episode where I just talk through the album. And Bobby Ann, who's a friend and patron of the show, deep music lover, he likes the project a lot. And uh, I had the idea to have him basically do an interview-style podcast, uh, doing a deep dive into the record, the writing, all the different people who helped me make it great. And uh, that's exactly what it is. So talk all about Paul Moak, Ethan Luck, the programming of the drums, talk about Brian King's Real Drums. We talk about the origin of the project, all of that stuff. And I'm really excited that it was a success. I'm really proud of the record. I'm really excited about volume two that I've already started writing. And as of this week of me recording this, I'm not sure when it will drop, all of the Kickstarter orders have been fulfilled. That means that with the pieces left over, which is maybe 80 pieces of vinyl, maybe 30 cassette tapes, handful of t-shirts, some stickers, it's now available to any of you out there who want to buy the record. So the best way to do that is to... You can reach me at LunarSatan at Yahoo.com or just my normal email address or the your pocket. just however you want to get in touch, all the various DMs on the socials. And the record's 25 bucks In the States, it's only 5 bucks to ship it to you. Outside the States, it's about $25 to ship it to you. So... Keep all of that in mind, and uh, reach out to me if you want a copy of it. This stuff is not going to last very long, and I'm honestly not sure if I'm going to be repressing any of it. So, I do appreciate all of you out there who have been really supportive of the project, either through the Kickstarter or just in general. A lot of really special people helped fund it. A lot of people really came through when the shipping funding got dicey. You all know who you are. You all know how much I appreciate you it's just such a fun ride to be on and i'm excited about the potential of maybe putting some shows together performing the material live all of that fun stuff so let's just get into it and talk about the album with our friend bobby anand without further ado here's a deep dive into the lunar satan album enjoy Welcome to Metal Up Your Podcast. This is a very special, satanic edition. Me and Bobby Anand, who's joining us from California, friend and patron of the show, we're going to be having an in-depth discussion about my record, Lunar Satan, which is interesting because the band itself was born on Metal Up Your Podcast. And uh, since the album has come out, I've always wanted to do kind of a deeper dive, maybe a track by track, get into some of the minutia. And uh, I hit up Bobby because I thought Bobby would be great for this. And uh, we might even do one for my record, Vampire, as well. So the way this is going to work is we're going to meet Bobby here in a second. You're all going to love him. He's charming, as you can imagine. And he's basically going to be curating this conversation and interview-style talking to me about Lunar Satan because I feel like too much of a jerk (laughs) just talking about it all myself. And it feels feels a little um, easier to do if uh, someone's interested. And Bobby, of course, is very prepared as usual. He's got some great questions. So without further ado... Uh, thank you, Bobby, for taking the time, for being interested in the project. You're wearing your Lunar Satan shirt already. We've already got the party started. All we're missing, we're just missing some candles, uh, maybe a carved pentagram into a tree, a seance, a Ouija board. But otherwise, we're pretty close to having some sort of, you know, occult ritual, don't you think?
2: Absolutely. I yeah. feel like, uh, you know, it, it really hits and ties into the whole theme of it, you know, with us. Kind of you being the point person, you know, and speaking on behalf of Chris and uh, Paul, as well as uh, Ethan on their aspects and what they did, because you were you're, you're the Lars of Lunar Satan. You know, I was going to oh use an analogy later, but really think about it. right? You are the injector. You if there was a recycler that was still available, you would be putting the recycler ad out, you know, and, and finding the specific players instead of reaching out to them by sending them stems, you know, and things like that. Yeah. So, I feel like we're doing it the way Lars would have done it, you know.
1: I'm just like a Danish tennis player coming to America and looking for the right people to make a a great project with. And so, yeah, all the, you know, the stars of the record, we'll be talking about them. Uh, I will be representing them today. I hope I do them justice. And uh, maybe before you kind of take over with the album, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, your introduction to, you know, we're all here because we all like this band Metallica. So, Give us just a really brief rundown of kind of your world with Metallica, maybe when you started listening to the podcast. Let us know a little bit about where you're coming from. Sure.
2: Like um, Clinton said, my name is Bobby Anand. Uh, I used to live in Los Angeles uh, when the podcast first started and uh, probably started listening about uh, roughly three years ago. I think it was when I first started reaching out. Uh, pre-joining like, uh, Patreon and then increasing my tiers to now being up at the highest tier level. And uh, I think my introduction to Metallica, I really need to you know, give props to my older brother. Um I won't say how much older he is because he's retelling his age, but <laughs> um, he, uh, he actually had the Injustice for All CD. And uh, I think he learned about it, obviously, through the one video because my first and earliest memory of... Seeing it was very similar to Ethan's story of seeing like on dial and TV and things like that. Yep. Um, the one video, you know, and see it truncated and it's being like, you know, if I think about it, I'd be eight at that age. And so um, just get my age out. At, um, <laughs> and so uh, in that aspect, um, we all kind of was like, oh, you know, at that age, you're like, this video is dark. And like the whole joke that like Kirk made, I remember them actually saying that where at the end of it, you know, the VJ at the end would be go on a lighter note.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Because really there was nothing like that at the time. And I think that's what really, you know, changed it. And actually my Injustice for All C D that I still have to this day is his copy.
1: Oh of- I actually stole it
2: from him. <laughs> I don't think he ever missed it in that aspect because I think he liked it a lot, but then you know, wasn't as obsessed as I was. So he
1: would soon move on to Yanni, uh, you know, Yanni's first couple of albums, thereby leaving you Justice. And I think this ties in a little bit to Lunar Satan, you know, the one video, you know, that story being similar to Ethan's is and for me, it was really Inner Sandman, which I think it's the same thing that's happening there, which is there's something about it that scares you. And that's what makes you attracted to it. Exactly. And I'm a lifelong horror movie fan. But my first memory of being alive is watching a horror film. And there's, you know, as we get into the record, I mean, there's so much in the album that is a the whole album is basically a love letter to the music I love and to the horror films that I love. And I I love tracing that thread to Metallica because for me, it was Inner Sandman, but that video is scary too. And maybe for some other kids, it was the Until It Sleeps video. Maybe for some other kids even, it was the, you know, the St. Anger video at the prison. And uh, there's just something really indelible about seeing that as a kid where you're not scared in any kind of real way. It's more like being on a roller coaster, you know? Absolutely. And,
2: and I don't want to get too much on tangent, City, but I remember like my very first horror movie uh, was Nightmare on Elm Street. And Me too. Again, thanks to my older brother. Oh, that's so awesome. Me too. I always wanted to ask you that. Yeah. Um, so it's funny because I think, um, do you remember the bus scene where they showed it rocking back and forth? Absolutely. I think uh, my brother was the one that noticed it being like, oh, do you see the clay model around it? Yeah. And do you see how that's not completely real? I think that's why... Like my wife says, I'm completely desensitized uh, to horror movies. Like, for instance, I watched the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I saw my old, old school Netflix, like, uh, in addition to streaming the old DVDs because, like, the remasters come out. And I like to watch, like, the same time, you know, because you can't get streaming, like, the director's cuts or all that information yeah. uh, attached to it. So um, I remember, like, watching that and thinking as a kid, like, how, oh my gosh, you know, how close it looked like he got to The Blade. And then rewatching it now with such a, I just bought a new high-definition television one after it moved, and I realized, I'm like, oh, he's nowhere near that. And you can clearly tell there's no blade on that yeah. chainsaw.
1: Ultimately, they're just movies. That bus scene in Freddy's Revenge, which is the second one, to this day, out of all the films, I'm 37 now, is still one of the scariest scenes of the whole franchise to me. And it definitely looks hokey. I mean, it, you know in the big shots, when you can see it's like... Yeah, it's, waving and cheating. It looks hokey, but... That, but I was always able to forgive that and, like, just get on the ride and, like, sort of be there. And, I, you know, I don't care that it's – I don't know. That's just almost the fun of it, you know. It's like it can be no fun sometimes to say, wait a minute, that wouldn't happen. It's like, come on, it's a movie about Freddy Krueger. It doesn't matter if it would happen or not, you know. It's like it's a movie about dreams, and dreams are insane. So I always kind of lean into it, which I think is another another sort of spiritual um, anchor point of the Lunar Satan Project. I didn't prepare Absolutely. any of this. I didn't prepare any of these connections. We're just uh, we're just uncovering the truth here, Bobby. I'm excited already, Absolutely. and we haven't even really done it yet.
2: Exactly. I feel like, you know, that's the best thing about this podcast are the tangent cities. So
1: we all remember the famous
2: episode, or I should say infamous episode, where Ethan, you know, kind of you guys are spitballing as part of your tangent aspect and you know you mentioned Satan in space by mentioning you know going back to horror films that's why I wanted to bring up this whole tangent City about you know Jason in space the the whole aspect and the trade that you know when you run out of any ideas just put them in space (laughs) you know it keeps the franchise going you know we can can knock a couple more out after that and so it just it was amazing that you said Satan in space and immediately he christens the band name just, just instinctively to say Lunar Satan and all of Stop
0: the
1: light bulb. Come on. But I love songs about Satan. My <laughs> mouse do. pad in my studio is a fucking pentagram. Yes. My studio is covered in skulls. These lyrics are so amazing. I know. They're great. Have you ever written any kind of like death metal, black metal lyrics? Not I've never really, done it. No. I, I want to try it. Or like, you know what I want to do? I want to write like a, um, like a Satan in space thing. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of like Jason X. <laughs> like, like, a, like a metal record, but about Satan, like Satanism, but in space. In space. Doesn't that sound amazing? Don't you immediately want to check it out? I would listen to it. I, I actually have a note. This is, I love all the Satan talk. Ha ha. I'm trapped in his spell. I'm going to hell. <laughs> is that ridiculous? <laughs> I'm trapped in space. I see Satan's face. See, I'm already writing the Satanic Space Odyssey right now. Oh, you can do it, man. I believe in you. The opening line is... <laughs> I seriously love this shit. <laughs> How like a wolf and a witch will open the door. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like a like a, a clue you, you got on Plain Zelda. Like if there are like witches and fucking wolves and the devil and pentagrams and blood. You're in. I just whatever whether it's a movie or a song or or art deco for my modern home post post modern satanic home. Sure. I'm in. <laughs> I can't wait to hear Clint's record about a devil in space. Yeah, Satan in space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why does he have to be just on Earth? He can be in space. He's, he's, not, he's, he's not fucking Satan. He's not on Earth. He's he's in <laughs> hell, remember? <laughs> Thank you for the theology lesson. Well, you Let's, said he didn't have to be on Earth. He's not. Right. He's in another dimension. Why not space? Yeah, put him in space, man. Maybe he's fucking hanging out in, on the moon. Lunar Satan. <laughs> Lunar Satan. Oh my God, You're welcome. Lunar Satan is You're an welcome. amazing band name. Thank you. Good night, Dark Continent. We are Lunar Satan. <laughs> a witch will open the door.
0: <laughs>
1: I honestly believe that if Ethan hadn't immediately said Lunar Satan, I don't think the project would have ever happened. Because as you know, and as any of the listener of the show knows, those tangents can just really, I mean, they're really ephemeral. They can just really sort of, we could camp out in, you know, uh, Dave Mustaine quoting Back to the Future for like 15 minutes, or we can just completely move on. It just It's very um, – one of the things I love about working with Ethan, and I think it's just a product of our friendship, but I, I love that when those moments happen, none of them are planned. We just sort of commit to each other. Like if he starts a thing, I commit. If I start a a, a thing, a character, whatever, he always commits. He's such a great partner. And uh, he's so quick on his feet, too. And and he's also really patient because I can tend to dominate a dynamic with us. And uh, he's always very patient. And then he'll just put a little sting in there. And I think that's what was happening in that episode. I haven't heard it, but I, I uh, someone, someone sent us like a clip of it. And yeah, I think we're riffing on Satan in space. And it's a lot of me talking about it. And once he said Lunar Satan, like you said, it was like a light bulb. It was like, holy shit, that's like a real band that doesn't exist yet that I, that we created now. And then I almost felt, I almost felt a lighthearted pressure to write it immediately. I was like, I have to write it now. So I guess that is sort of a, uh, in in the, I guess in the story of the podcast, that is actually a pretty notable episode. That and that that's up there with like the outlaw torrent debacle for sure. Absolutely. Yet another thing that will live on in community. <laughs> totally.
2: But then if we draw like a timeline to that, because as we remember, there was quite a bit of time in between when we heard the first demo in comparison to when the episode came out. So maybe one thing we can do is like a walk through the game plan for the band. And how that initially thought was planted, you know, like as in what type of genres you were going to try to blend together, because like we know with Leaner Satan, there is a lot of, you know, even within metal subgenres, just any just general, you know, use of acoustic instruments. There's so many things that you blend together, which is fantastic. Uh, You know, what was the mission statement for the band in terms of like tunings, imagery, uh, what tempos, because, you know, there's uh, a lot of alternating tempos, Mm -hmm. like halftime and double time, uh, you know, for some of the thrashier parts, like. Did you kind of envision all of that at once or how did you kind of break that up? Because there's just so much in that aspect to to build, you know, this brand that's called now or Satan. I
1: think what made it so cool, I think what makes it so cool, like I listened to it today in preparation to having this conversation with you. I haven't listened to it in a while um, just because I I got so fucking sick of it to make it, to make a thing like that. You just are so um, enmeshed in it. So anyway, I've taken a break, but I listened to it today and I was so proud of it. Because it really is pretty cool, and it's on such a journey. But I think one of those reasons is I didn't know what it was. You know, I think the first song I wrote was We Ride the Skies, which might be the best song on the album. I don't know. And uh, it just came out. It came out that way. I didn't know what it was. It sounded kind of like Tool, which I love. That's probably the most Toolish song on the album. And I did what I do a lot when I write a song that I think is pretty cool. Is I'm like, oh, I'm just going to write nine more of these, and it'll be awesome. And then of course when I did start I mean that that song coming out the way it did was like okay this can be a real thing because we ride the skies is like sick I mean I think that song is just oh, rips yeah. and it's just got this great ominous vibe like it's almost like a movie you know it felt cinematic the lyrics I just gave myself so much permission to make it as evil and ridiculous as possible which I think is another little a little key into the album of like all the genres being different and and like there's a you know kind of a sludge song and there's some thrash maybe some of that proggy tool stuff there's yeah there's a big acoustic ballad I didn't really have a game plan they all just sort of came out and I think that's why the album is cool I think it's one of the reasons yeah one of the reasons Yama's the is cool is cuz so many talented people helped me make it great but in terms of stylistically I think what what's makes it really pure sounding is that I was literally just having fun Absolutely
2: I I think that's great because uh I know, you know, I hadn't mentioned this before about myself, but, you know, I I played in many bands, not as as professional level as you had, but, you know, smaller shows and a lot of churches and a lot of DIY touring and things like that. And I remember in one of our bigger bands uh, that I had done, you know, it's one of the things I really learned, um, I think it was probably like in late college or after graduating, was, uh, you know, when you create, you know, your add on you know this would be craigslist in those kind of times uh, to find people you had that kind of mission statement as you always would explain like i remember uh, one of the bands i was trying to put together would be dual vocals and uh you know like i would do the high pitch and then we'd have another person i explained you know i'd have like album covers set and like mission statements in terms of what sounds styles you know i was like we could do these type of blast beats down tempo aspects and like halftime quarter notes things like that you know i, I try to explain it and convey it as well and. I remember one of the best times for me was uh, meeting one of our drummers. You know, he played professionally, you know, with um, Hermits Hermits, uh, you know, after, now people are going to know that who he is. But uh, yeah, Peter Noon, like he still is part of his touring band before, obviously, pre-pandemic. And, uh, you know, he taught me that it was like, he, that's most important when you're, you know, even before you, you know, grab the guitar and show them your riffs you know, explain to them exactly what you're trying to convey. Absolutely. That shows, it explains to them exactly what you're trying to accomplish. So they know right away, hey, this is, I'm on for the ride or I'm not. And so I think that's why I think having the band title um, right away. And then, like you said, kind of knowing what your influences are um, was fantastic. And uh, I think I'll I'll skip on to We Ride the Skies, actually, because you you brought that in as a great segue. And so um, with that one, you know, there's that use of the polyrhythm. So was that something that you initially came up with? Or um did you know like you wanted that kind of tool reference? Or you know when you you programmed the drums initially yeah. you knew you were gonna do that polyrhythm.
1: Yeah, all of the bass playing and drums were done by my friends, Ethan Luck and Brian King and Chris Cacamese But every one of those that I sent them, I had already played those instruments to give them a map. And they, they definitely brought a lot of legitimacy to the parts. But basically anything that was polyrhythmic or Um, I mean, most of the bones I did, I wrote myself. I don't have that much of a technical knowledge in that area. So I think that might have helped me not get in my own way. I I wouldn't be able to tell you like what the polyrhythms are or anything. Um, When I wrote that riff, my first thought was like, I think this is like a tool song. Like, I think I'm ripping off a tool song. So, so at first I was like, I don't even know if I can write this. And then once I, but I'm a huge, huge Tool fan. So once I just sort of did, did the math a little bit, I felt like I was in the clear and it, it felt like an homage rather than like a, a rip, you know, it felt more like an homage. And then of course my voice, does, you know, I can't, when I open my mouth to sing, it doesn't sound like Maynard or or the guy from Ghost, which I think is another big, rep, a big influence on the album. But when I just opened my mouth to sing, it kind of sounded like me. Because of the limitations that I believe I have with my voice, I was able to sort of write. Towards them, uh, which I think creates a unique sound on the album, and then of course the lyrical content. Like again, like I was like, this is an al- this album is ridiculous. Like the whole premise from the beginning was this is ridiculous. So if you give yourself that permission, like I'm not writing "Blowing in the Wind," you know, I'm not going to write a song that's going to like change socially change the world. I'm writing a song about Satan in space. So the the permission and the fun. It was like being a kid again to just. I mean. The lyrics make sense to me. Like they're not just complete nonsense, but they are in a little bit really collagey and uh just dark imagery. And it was just fun, man. I wrote it really fast. I didn't I did not do a lot of second guessing on this album. And again, I think that's why when I listen to it now, I'm like, oh man, because I do so you know, a lot of our listeners will know, and I think you know, Bobby, like I write songs professionally for, you know, commercials and and for pop country artists and for tv and film that's very um assignment driven we need to write this kind of song it needs to be this long and you need to hit these emotional points by this time get to the chorus it's a love song but make it vague enough where it could be a male or a female and i love writing that way but with lunar satan there's no one telling me any of that crap I could just close my eyes and be in that bus with Freddy Krueger at the beginning of Freddy's Revenge and write whatever little dream, little nightmare I wanted, you know. It was very freeing. It's very cool.
2: Absolutely, and I can totally empathize because, like, I'm currently writing – I wrote a screenplay uh, a while back in the beginning of the pandemic, and now I'm trying to use one of the characters as a play. And so you live in that fantasy world because, like, you read – some of the things that you write for and you're like, I I would never think that I never would be that. And so you're in that character as you write, you know, and then you're almost like detach yourself. Uh, Oh yeah. And congratulations again uh, on re-signing the uh, Rough Trade Publishing.
1: Thank you. Thank you. That's, that was a little, a little light blip in an otherwise completely horrifically dark year, not just for me, but for everyone. So yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And I think
2: that's, was one of the questions I think I took off that I was going to add back in was like the whole idea of a persona, you know, in writing of a persona and then how that persona can kind of get attached to you. Mm -hmm. We know a person, you know, we use his real name, so we don't give him infamy, but Brian Warner, uh, you know, where he Mm -hmm. started to write about a persona and then became the persona because he had to write so much about it. And so it's good when you can admit that, you know, it is a persona and you're writing that aspect, you know, and people can see you detached from that. You know, I, I know when I used to put out records and things like that, I always never put my last name on it, you know, just because I was so fearful about, you know, people Googling it after the fact and things like that, because I always thought of that as that persona while you wrote, you know, and so it's attached to that person, not the person with the last. Yeah, name. Yeah,
1: <laughs> had, I've i had people tell me that I should really lean into the character of it. And like, like, for example, the bio of my Instagram, which this is just small peanuts, but this is this will just sort of be a symbol for what I'm talking about my bio said something like Clint Wells is a professional songwriter in Nashville. Lunar Satan is a one man, you know, science fiction metal project. And I had a friend reach out that was like, dude, you should not say any of that. You should say lunar Satan is a band from that. Like he basically was like, you need to lean into it being a thing and not like, Oh, that's not connected to, you know, the way that the artist you were talking about, like I'm in no danger of believing in lunar Satan enough to become whatever this character's, most of the characters I think on the album are just people who are like who believe in Satan and they're doing these weird rituals and uh there's like a coming you know there's a there's a coming happening and then what I love about the last song which I'm sure we'll get into is basically the last song is kind of like uh Jacob's Ladder or American Psycho where it's like oh is it all real was that was any of that even real it's kind of almost like a story about a mentally ill person just with some bitch and riffs you know So, uh, yeah, I'm in no danger of bleeding into that guy. You know, I'm a dad. (laughs) I listen to a lot of uh, Radiohead and, uh, you know, Harry Nilsson and do a lot of crying listening to Alanis Morissette Unplugged. So, (laughs) you know, the Leonard Satan is definitely just one facet of kind of my world. And I'm cool with it being just a little fragment of who I am.
2: Not to get into that tangent city, but it's so funny. I was watching like a Woodstock 99 uh, documentary recently and they had uninvited, um, which is the same version she did on her unplugged. And I was like, that is such a great song. I think still to this day, you know,
1: undeniably great. And
2: uh, well, let's get back to like your vocal stylings. Um, You -hmm. know, as we know in a lot of your bumpers and things that you've done for metal up your podcast, you use a a specific plugin, um, which I believe is just like a a gain setting, for doing your harsh vocals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing that I really like that you did with Lunar Satan is you didn't really rely on that except for within like Pigfuck or yeah. Mirage. Yeah. And I thought what was really cool, like in Vocal Sp- Sepentum, I hope I said that right.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right.
2: Uh, is uh, you are so fantastic with doing overdubs. And I think that comes from your publishing aspect. You know, I always personally had struggled with that. You know, it's like, well, what's the, you know, complementary part to this? You know, and then because of timing and you know when the producer we say well you only have a, a few you know an hour to do all of your overdubs you'd be like okay i'll just come up one complimentary part and then maybe a feedback behind it you know just yeah. to add in for aspects because that's something i can do quickly versus like on the spot coming up with like adding you know extra maybe a, a buried acoustic track you know i think in a, a vocal spectrum in addition to that buried acoustic track you do you have. Um, like even the usage of that plugin with like the harsh vocals, you know, deep in the background, which like you said, I listened to it again today, but this time instead of doing it, off a of Spotify or use the MP3 files. I use the wave files so I can yeah. get really into each of those overdubs.
1: That's going to be deeper, right? Exactly, and that's one thing that you
2: know I tell people to this day. I'm like, if you want to help a band, always listen to Bandcamp or SoundCloud where they're able to use wave formats because Spotify, as we know, they always compress. They use a lower bit rate, yeah, and the quality is never good. You know, that's for when you need to listen to it quickly. But if you really like it, go buy the album on Bandcamp. You know, totally you have to buy digital. And so, and plus, you know, they always do that thing where they give most of the money to the artist. So we're obviously going to yep, get into that. Right. But um, in terms of vocal stylings, you know, when you're writing the lyrics, how did you decide, you know, uh, this one was going to be clean vocal. And then with, obviously with Pickfuck, the verses are clean, but then the choruses have the distorted vocals. So um, like for that one, obviously you have to invoke the, the feeling. So was it just because you knew for those that in Mirage that it needed to be that kind of, distorted vocal? Or did you try initially clean and then realize, no, you know, based on the where the melody has to sit and, you know, where your voice sits in that range, like it'd have to be an octave higher and octave lower. So you went with distortion just to kind of keep it on the level.
1: I only tried to clean up Pig Fuck" and Mirage after I knew they were going to be on the album. When I wrote those two in particular, I wasn't necessarily writing for the album. I was actually just writing those for fun. And I wrote Pig Fuck" because I was really upset. The screamy vocals I mean, I wrote those songs in 20 minutes each and everything I did just felt like what it needed to be. When I liked the songs enough and I got some feedback from some friends, I sent it to some friends and uh, I was like, this, I think this is part of, lo- I think he was even Ethan who helped me. I was like, I think this shit is Lunar Satan. And um, I actually reached out to Brad Blazik, who is a friend of the show and a friend of mine. And. I said, dude, do you think this? Because wo- I tried to clean up Pigfuck and Mirage, and it didn't work. It just didn't work, and I didn't spend too much time trying to force like you know, a square peg into a round hole. I've always let the Lunar Satan should be very intuitive. So when it wasn't working, I was like, "Fuck!" And so I, I think I hit up Brad Blazek and I said, "Dude, does this work? Does this work like on an album with Rewrite the Skies and whatever?" And he was like, "I think it does, dude." And he has a pretty good hard rock and heavy metal pedigree, so I just sort of trusted that. And those were the only two that. That required that singing. There is some of that on a vocoder just to give it some texture. And going back to uh, the overdub stuff, I mean, that's the benefit of making an album, you know, in my studio. I didn't have someone kind of like pointing at a clock and making me feel uncomfortable, and and I was able to just experiment, you know, experiment and find out what it is. Wait from your sleep. This is one of the only times that I've written songs where I did what Metallica actually does, where the mu- most of the music came first. I knew I-, I would write the arrangement and this riff will go into this and holy shit, this will be the solo and I'll modulate for the solo. I didn't do it so much this way, but I'm doing it for volume two, where I have a couple of songs that have no lyrics yet and I'll jam them in my car and sing along in my car to sort of figure out what they are. But in my studio for volume one, I would just pace my studio. I, I remember distinctly doing that for set the witch on fire.
0: Secret knowledge of the earth, spells and incantations. All from the blackest fear, I come for the black witch killer. I come to send you off to
1: hell. Where I had that moth in the flame kind of r- rip off riff. And I was just pacing, trying to find it. It didn't take long. And then once I found it, I would sing over it into my microphone and do dummy lyrics, where I'm just singing nonsense. And then I would put that on a loop, and I would sit here, and I would write... Because I liked the phrasing of the dummy lyrics. Like, usually the first thing you do, the first thing you do, or first couple things you do, is the best. And if you keep overthinking it, you get further away from what's cool about it. So those first few dummy lyrics, I would just sit here, and I would just, even phonetically, I would say... What does it sound like I'm saying? And I have a few like Aleister Crowley books I keep around, some like occult shit I keep around just for a little bit of inspirado. I can just read like a, a dark poem. And uh, that's usually how they came, man. They all came really fast. The only one that took a long time was Blood Under Blood because A, it was the last song that I wrote for the project. And B, I thought it was the coolest, like it, I thought it was the coolest riff on the whole record. So I had a sense of like, oh, it's just got to be good. Like I really can't get lazy on Blood Under Blood. So the, I waited a little longer because I was, I knew that it was going to be a monster. But once I got into it and it started to come, I was like, hell yeah, of course it's Blood Under Blood. It, it's almost like it wrote itself. I mean, that's such a cliche, but once I figured out what the title was, I'm like, oh, this is Blood Under Blood, and I, I maybe had a verse or two. I was like, of course it's Blood Under Blood. And dude, I was so proud of that one. I wanted to put the demos out immediately. I just wanted to put it out. It was very hard to not not put that out immediately because I thought it was so cool. It's the kind of song I wanted to hear.
2: And that's one of those aspects where um, you can really hear, because it is up-tempo, I think that is like the great introduction to yeah. the song, because hey, it starts with that kind of staccato riff where you're building it in. You know, that's one thing where you can even hear the drop C aspect, because I think you start on some of the lower notes on that aspect. Did you take your tuning based on where you wanted to do your vocal phrasing? Like you said, you start with the music first, so did you know, did you start like the drop D and then realize, no, where I'm going to place the vocals, I need to go a step lower, and so therefore I'm going to go to C, or did you already know right away? Yeah,
1: I, I think of Vocos and Drop C, Blood in the Bloods, Drop C, Pig Fucks, Drop C. I think everything else might be down half a step and then maybe Drop D, down half a step. I, I don't. I actually don't know. I'd have to go look. But um, no, I never thought about it. On Vampire and a lot of the other songs I write, I think a lot about Key, and I'll change things once I start figuring out what the song is. I'm like, oh, I need to lower this or raise it. With, with Lunar Satan... I never really thought about it. And I got into some trouble with some of the songs where I was like, oh, shit, am I going to be able to sing this? I think i tuned the guitar down to write pig fuck and pig fuck was just listening to black sabbath and then i kind of heard that riff i just kind of heard that in my head i was driving and i was like ah i like couldn't wait to get home to uh, i didn't know what it would be or what chords it would be and i just tuned i just tuned low because i just just felt like a cool thing to do that song came out super cool very alice in chains meets uh who knows what and um And then I think the guitar was just in that tuning from that song. So then when I did uh, whatever else songs are in that tuning, Mirage maybe, or Evoco, or definitely Blood Into Blood, it's just because that's what the tuning was. So when I just started sitting down and playing some riffs, that's what came out. I didn't really think much about the tuning at all. Like... When we do this stuff live, I think it's going to be a bitch because we're going to have to really think about guitar changes because, you know, everyone's going to have to change guitars.
2: Yeah, yeah, that would be very hard to do on the spot to go up a whole half step in that aspect uh, to try to do it just off of your tuner. So, yeah, I definitely need a backup guitar in that aspect.
1: The new stuff is, I think, all going to be an (laughs) E-standard. Oh, actually, (laughs) I was
2: going to ask about that um, because I believe the new single is... In standard, right? Yeah,
1: that's just because I'm, I'm writing the new album on a, um, a Gold Top Les Paul that I have. It's got P90s in it. It's a very unmetal guitar. It's just got, the, the new album is like way more stoner rock. And when I wrote the new song, Lord of the Vampires, and then I have another song called Swing Left, Swing Right, I was like, oh yeah, I'm just going to write the whole thing on this. But again, I did that with uh, the Volume 1 too. When I wrote We Ride the Sky, so I'm like, I'm going to write nine more like these, and that'll be the album. And of course, that's not what happened. You know, They all end up becoming their own little their own little things. Like, Come Dark Sun is completely different than anything else on the album.
2: We all know it's the fourth track, Come Dark Sun, so that's obviously a great homage to the fourth track ballad um, Absolutely. that you did for Metallica. So. Thank you for doing that. Uh, did you initially, when you get to the bridge, did you initially think you would pick up the tempo and possibly go to like a distorted part, a la, you know, Fade to Black mm-hmm. or Sanitarium to replicate the formula? But you then you realize when you wrote the bridge, really it doesn't need that or even qualify for it.
1: Yeah, I, totally. I thought the song was plenty heavy because the, yeah, I mean, sometimes heavy isn't really just about loud guitar. Sometimes heavy is just like attitude and vibe. I mean, that was just going to be the demo. The, the original plan was for that whole song to be heavier. Once I passed it around and let people hear it, it just had its own power. So once I realized that, okay, it's going to be this acoustic thing, and really that song just got birthed because I bought a 12-string, off-market 12-string in Asheville. I was on a vacation with my wife. And just anytime you buy a new instrument, maybe you've experienced this, Bobby, but you could put a new – even if it's just a new guitar, even if it's tuned the same – Something's just—I mean, the the, the poetic language—that oh, there's songs in that guitar, you know, like waiting to come out. Of course, that's not the case. You write a song on a guitar, but that's what it felt like. Those chords were super weird and fun. And Chris Kakamis, who plays bass, who's just a consummate musician, just a great bass player. That was the only—I would send him those riffs for like blood unto blood and stuff, and he would just learn them. He he never asked me how to play any of it. He could just listen to it and play it. But that song, Come Dark Sun, which is probably one of the easier ones, is the only one he was like, hey, can you write me a chord chart? Because harmonically, it was just so strange. Like it goes from D minor to D major, and it's got these weird passing notes and harmonics. And what makes it heavy going from, you talked about the bridge. What's cool about it is the percussion and the depth of like that halftime groove keep building with each chorus. And by the time you hit that last chorus, there's so much like heavy, like, big big stomps and big chains and shit it's like uh it's got a very cool like organic feel to it and it it reminds me of like like the, the narrator of that song i don't know what kind of weird shit they're into but it reminds me of like um you know it reminded me of like the wicker man or uh midsummer would be a newer kind of film but it just reminded me of a bunch of oh, people, yeah. people out, out in a field doing some crazy ritual. It's just got this great occult horror movie feeling that I love. It just reminded me of like watching a movie I would want to watch.
2: Absolutely, and uh, not to go too much on the stanza, but one thing I really liked about Midsummer is almost all of it takes place uh, during daylight. daylight. Yeah. yeah, you got we read the same minds because my favorite yeah. horror movie of all time is Halloween because of that aspect is mm-hmm. it's daylight, but that greeny, like you know, shot it was shot in the valley. And during that kind of like springtime, they have that kind of greeny, it's called May Grey around this time where it's like this greeny daylight. And so they utilize that just based on the fact probably the time they filmed and it really sets that movie because there's very little of it is in, you know, nighttime. And I think that's what makes it more believable is that you see him in daylight.
1: And they probably did that just to save money. Like they probably just really did it for different kinds of reasons. Maybe not all creative, you know. There may have been a lot of practical reasons, but that's what becomes believable and scary about it. And I, I think that's the power of Come Dark Sun, is uh much like Midsummer is this it's definitely the scariest movie you'll ever see that's all in daylight. And I think Come Dark Sun is plenty heavy with acoustic guitars. And not heavy with acoustics like, oh, like Black Label Society did an acoustic album. It's it's heavy. I mean, it's, it's as dark and creepy as anything on the album. In fact, some of the lyrics in that song are the scariest on the album, in my opinion. Where I would write, you know, and I'm not a spiritual, well, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. So I'm not like afraid of the devil or anything. But there were some lyrics in that song where I thought, oof, this is creepy, which was my internal green light was going ding 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 that's good that's good do that more of that you know what i <laughs> yeah, mean
2: exactly and i think that's the coolest thing is i think all of it is all program drums too right there's no yeah. live percussion in that so that's what makes it, it 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 is like a demo but it sounds so professional you know it sounds like you didn't need to add more of the aspect and uh, i remember i did one album where we used the same thing where we used a demo version because in the background there was a bell we were Uh, you know, we recorded in the factory to this digital eight track. And that bell was the actual, like, uh, you know, lunch bell. And so it fit, you know, thematically and it fit, you know, within the harmony of the song. And I was like, oh, we can never recreate this. Totally. So we just have to use, you know, it has flaws in it. But I I liked putting out that version just because of the fact that that's just never going to get replicated again.
1: 100%. And that's how I feel about Come Dark Sound. There's definitely flaws in it. You know, when I recorded a lot of the vocals, I didn't realize those would be the ones I would send to Paul. And that's actually, you know, the magic of Come Dark Sun is Paul. So Paul's the uh, my friend in town who mixed the album. And I was able to send him a song like that. And, and when I knew that Come Dark Sun was going to be on the album kind of in that form, I re-recorded stuff as much as I could and made it great. I got Chris on bass. I went back and, like, sort of really put a lot of TLC back into the programming. Like, if you listen to it compared to the demo, The demo sounds way demo-y. But I was able to say to someone like Paul, hey, man, make this song sound evil and crazy. Take my ridiculous stems that I did in my home studio in Donaldson and just make them sound like the end of the world. And we talked about this a little earlier, like just having like a musical vocabulary where I could say, you know, I could say I could give him references and we didn't have to spend too much time being like, what's that? You know, I was like, make it like War Pigs. But it's, you know, War Pigs meets Monster Magnet meets Night of the Living Dead. Like we could just have those kinds of talks about it. And plus, because Paul's such a big Metallica guy, a lot of Metallica references were used in the mixing. Like Black, he's like, you want Black Album drums? Or do you want more, you know, hardwired guitars? We were able to just use that shorthand because of our just collective love of music. And speaking of bells, there's some great scary like church bells in Come Dark Sun, and they're the yeah. same bells. They're the same bells I used in Set the Witch on Fire. So there's a few things where you're hearing some, like the wind at the beginning of Evoco Serpentum, which is the first song on the album, you hear that same exact wind on the beginning of Voices, which is the last song. So there's a few kind of threads in the album that maybe you don't pick up when you first hear it, but it's like maybe even subconsciously you're tying it all together because the songs are so different. I had to make sure they got tied together somehow it's got to be a way from mirage to make sense with set the witch on fire et cetera. i wanted to bring
2: up the whole mixing aspect my understanding was literally all of your stems everything was completed from a recording standpoint within your home studio and then paul really just came in for mixing so like yeah. as in no overdubs no you know re-records none of that happened at, at paul's studio
1: no he didn't produce it i produced it all myself and paul just mixed it i would love to do a record where paul produced it too just to take some pressure off myself, and he would be so great at it. But everything was done in my studio except for Chris's bass, which he did in Las Vegas. Brian King played drums on Voices and the uh, the charioting. He did those from New Jersey, which is no joke. He actually did them from New Jersey. And then Ethan did a lot of his programming from his studio in Nashville. But other than that, well, and the strings – on Come Dark Sun, we done by my friend Eleanor Denig, who did her strings in her studio in Nashville. But mostly everything you hear, I did in my studio. So yeah, I would send Paul, when I would say to Paul, hey, uh, I've got another Lunar Satan song for you, I would just have all the stems clean, bounced, and I would send them to him with the BPM, the key, just in case he had to do any any finagling, which I don't think he did, and then uh, all the stems, and I would give him a vibe. And then we would do a few rounds of mixed notes. You know, he did tell me the other day, that he used different drum samples, but I hadn't heard that before. He did tell me he replaced like a few snares with some samples he'd already had in his studio, which is something Metallica does. a lot of people do it. but I actually hadn't heard that before, so i don't have an- I don't have a lot of info about that. But I did just learn that he did that.
2: Yeah, I mean, the most famous aspect was uh, Andy Wallace when he did it for Nevermind. I think most people don't realize how much sampling was used on that album to get that sound, you know, in addition to the Terminator snare, you know, that whole joke that they had to rent that specific snare just to get that sound. And that's one thing I do want to applaud. I guess now you and Paul in, in that aspect was, I don't know if it was during mixing or mastering, but the fact that you kept... You know the levels for the drum so high especially the kick i mean that's one of my favorite aspects you know is that even on your solo album uh you always keep the snare and the kick nice and loud and that's one thing i always appreciate you know i, I always get upset when i hear a mixed job and i can't tell which tom is hitting when you're hitting here oh, yeah. you know if you can't if it bounces and bleeds out and you're like well do i know is that floor or is that you know my rack you know i If I can't tell the difference myself, no one else will be able to. So I'm like, always keep it high in the mix, you know?
1: Well, and I, I, you know, I was raised on Pantera and that Vinnie Paul click, that like really pointy click of that kick drum and that pop of that snare, it's just, it's just built, you know, it's baked into the cake. So those were definitely a lot of references when, you know, Ethan would program drums, which Ethan, by the way, is a fucking genius at programming drums because I can program drums. But Ethan can program drums more so than anyone I know, where they sound so, he has such a great intuition for it. And I've watched him do it. And it's not like when I program drums, I'll play them live on a MIDI controller and then I'll quantize them. And then I'll go in and put little flourishes and try to make it real. I'll put fills in. Or Ethan, he fucks with the velocity of every hit. And he's a lifelong drummer. You know, he was a drummer in a lot of great bands. So when he programs, he programs with like the soul of playing the real drums. And I, I just think that comes through. And then I can tell someone like Paul, hey, you know, one of my notes to Paul was make these drums sound real, make them sound great. So Paul's able to, able to introduce like air, room mics, a lot of breathability into it that I think the album just, w- <laughs> the album I think would sound a lot shittier without what they did, with, with, without what they brought to the table in the, in those mixing terms. Oh yeah. I was gonna say,
2: absolutely. Like I actually, is a misnomer, I think I, I put in in my, uh, you know, notes that the, the fact that I thought like the ride and all the crashes were overdubbed live, you know, those actually uh, sound so believable because you can hear the bell on, on the ride. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, and I, and I'm not, and not to get too technical, but I, does, uh, Ethan use like drum doctor? Cause I've never been able to get like that proper ride symbol with the bell and things like that. That must be, you know, adjusting.
0: Right? I'm going
1: to, fr- I'm going to forget what software he uses. It's really ubiquitous. I mean, it might even be addictive drums. And then with it, which is like a hundred bucks. But then within Addictive Drums, you can buy different kits. And we definitely experimented a little bit with some kits where he would send me, like, I think the first time he did drums for me was for Set the Witch on Fire, maybe. And it's, my note to him was, it sounds like Megadeth. I was like, it sounds too much like clean 80s thrash. It needs to sound more 90s. Yeah. And, And dude, he was like, got it. He made a few, you know. He made a few changes, sent it back to me, and it was right. On Lord of the Vampires, the song we just did, Paul sent me the first mix, and I was like, yeah. The, I was like, dude, it's just not... You know, we all work together all the time, so there's not a lot of... Uh, we don't have to, like, walk on eggshells. So I was like, dude, that's just not happening. It's not right. The drums are just wrong. And I said, I said it needs to be more stoner rock and less whatever it was. And he he wrote back immediately, and he was like, got it. No more black album, more stoner rock. And then the next mix... It was where it needed to be. Those kinds of conversations are a big part of it. And I guess that makes it a little less mysterious, but that's that kind of deep vocabulary with the music is just how you get to the finish line, at least in our world. Yeah,
2: you mentioned Vinnie Paul. I mean, there's that whole, and people don't know if it's true or not, but that rumor where, you know, you put the silver dollars on the beaters to get that thump. And that's one thing, you know, everyone's like, every time they talk about Bob Rock's production, my favorite Bob Rock production is actually Load, Reload and Garage Days, especially Garage Days, because that thump, I feel like is missing. You can hear the toms, the kicks, especially the crash and the snare perfectly on the Black Album. But I feel like the thump always gets compressed so much the way he produced that because he was producing it for radio. Yeah. Versus I feel like, especially with Garage Days, he didn't have to worry about that form and the aspect and those compression ratios. So he really let the, the thump. You know it's a, I know there's probably a more better technical term than that, but really that <laughs> is the sound. <laughs> it is the thump.
1: <laughs> I would say, though, if Bob Rock came into the room and was like, hey, I'm going to take all this material and, and run it through the Bob Rock machine, I'd be like, that's fine, Bob. Go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead, my friend. But I have my own Bob Rock. You know, I've got Paul. I'm lucky. And Paul's such a big Bob Rock fan. And Paul gets it. Paul fucking understands. And I think at the age that I'm at, and especially with this project, because it was all DIY, it was mostly conceived in this studio that I'm in now while my six-year-old daughter is asleep here and my wife's asleep on the left of me. So much of getting it done was having great people around me that just could have a very quick conversation and understand what it was. Even to mastering, you know, uh, my friend Sam Moses did all the mastering. He mastered Vampire. He's mastering the new Lunar Satan. I could even just say to Sam, it it needs to hit. I told him about Lord of the Vampires. I said, dude, it needs to fucking slam. Just do it. Do your thing. And he just did it. He knows. He knows where we're coming from. That's such a big part of it. And he's a guy that Paul uses all the time. Paul recommended Sam to me. I didn't know of Sam. Paul does master and can master. But I think the deal is by the time you get done mixing your ears, you just almost lose your your objectivity. So it's good to hand it off to someone with some fresh ears who specializes in that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, like that's a whole Howie Weinberg, how you know, mastered every album you and I used to listen to from like live and all the late 90s yeah. post-crunch music. Cause it has that kind of built for radio, you know, those levels are pushed to the, you know, they were pre-Death pre, pre um, Magnetic where they were literally, you know, bleeding out, but they were, they're trying to push all the way the yellow without hitting the red, you know, which I yeah. always appreciate because, you know, it's hard Like with the new tool album, their whole aspect was we didn't want to do that. You know, they wanted to keep it a little quiet because they wanted to keep it more organic. But you know, your ears are so accustomed to hearing that it feels different. It takes you a a few listens to get used to the old old fashioned way, you know, the early 90s kind of mastering aspects. Yeah. And Um, I,
1: you know, and I had the benefit of like, you know, this is a fully independent project, it's unlikely to sell millions of albums. So Paul approached me after he was mixing and he said, Hey, dude, if you want, I can transfer all this to tape and it's going to make it a little, you know, it's not going to be as bright, but it's going to have that great tape thing. And I was like, well, you know, it was going to cost a little more money to put it on tape. And I went to his mixing room in his studio and he a beat it for me. And the a was a little more clean and that kind of radio snap. And then he played the tape and it was a little more dull, but not in a bad way. It kind of just had more grit and texture and it was a fucking no-brainer, dude. It was like a little quieter, but I was like, put it on tape immediately. I just loved it. It just felt right for the project. I liked the idea of the project putting a little more of that texture and that analog on it. It felt right for this project. Now, if I was making a Hoobastank album, let's make it as digital sounding as possible. <laughs> but I wasn't making that album, unfortunately, for my bank account. <laughs> yeah. You're not a perfect person. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Uh, yeah, so I think um, going back to uh, some of our initial questions that we put in, there's a lot of key aspects to numerology, um, and then the obviously the also tying with the various thrash references. Um, when you started doing the writing, um, did you know within certain songs, okay, I need to hit the double time on this part just to kind of bring that reference back, uh, you know, to like our previous aforementioned band that we do our podcast about, <laughs> and then just to all your other influences. Or um, you know, did you know I had to always tie it back to that hard work that um, Hunter Baron, uh, Hunter Barrow was doing.
1: Yeah, I think I just took it song by song, and I, th- I think that's where a lot of like, I mean, dude, I just I've given my whole life to music. It's like all I know. It's the only thing I know this well, and uh, I'm not a Renaissance man. I just know music, and so when it came time to like put the pen to the paper uh, in every aspect of this album, whether it was chords, guitar playing what the drum should do, lyrically, should there be a third chorus, where does the solo go? It was just appealing to my education. And so all of those, at all of those forks in the road, we could do this, we could do that. We could go double time, we could change keys. All of those decisions were very intuitive. The map was just very easy. There's a few left turns where I was surprised myself. There's a few things that happened where Chris, when he sent me the bass back, it had this harmonic thing that I didn't expect. But I was like, Oh, that's what's going on there. And set the witch on fire in the second chorus, the rhythm kind of goes bam, 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 doo ga doo ga ding ding ding. There's all these big holes. In the second half of the chorus, on chorus two, Ethan introduced a groove. Bang ging and he's like, Hey man, if you don't like that, just let me know. It completely opened that chorus up for me in a way that I didn't hear it before. So there were all those little magic moments that happened. But in terms of like tying a theme together, I just didn't think about it too much. The album just sounds the way it needed to sound. Yeah,
2: because it has that natural flow and that natural feel. And I feel I think like the so. sequencing is really important for that album because like you have the intro with the, the rain on vocals, uh, mm-hmm. Um And then um, when you had all 10 songs done, did you spend a lot of time? Did you do actually multiple sequences yeah. to find out
1: which I, don't, a good reason. I did multiples, and then I sent, uh, and then I I um I hit up Chris, the bass player, and I said I'm not going to send you what my sequence is, but I want you to think about. I sent him the record when it was done, Map mixed, master done, and I said, hey, I want you to come up with a sequence because I was just curious. And he was strangely, he was the only one I did that with. I didn't do that with Ethan, and I didn't do that with any of my friends. I I just respect Chris so much, and I didn't want too many. Cooks in the Kitchen. Like, I don't need that many people to help me fucking figure out what order the 10 songs are. Uh, but it. But like you said, it is important. So I had mine. Chris came back with his, and I made some changes to mine based on his, but it mostly was what I originally conceived. I thought we read The Skies Would Be the Starter, but when I wrote, of when avoco Serpentem came out, I was like, that's the album opener. Like, what else could open the album? It's insane to even think of. And... I knew that Come Dark Sun would be the fourth track as an homage to Metallica, but also I think it's like emotionally a good point for that because, you know, the one the three punch of of uh, Evoco and the We Ride This Guys into Disappearment, which is funny, Disappearment's like the least liked song on the album, but it's one of my favorites. Like, yeah, it's actually mine. I love Disappearment so much. Mm. After those three it's good to get a break with like come dark sun really balances it out and is long and kind of arduous and then blood in the blood i think is a great midpoint just a great midpoint and after blood in the blood you kind of get the screamy guys *Pigfuck* and and uh, mirage and then kind of kind of a lunar satan classic because it was maybe the second or third song written and a lot of people heard the demo you got seth the witch on fire and then we get to end the album with voices which every time i hear voices i'm like holy shit this song is really good I don't know why in my head I'm like, that's the weakest song on the album. But every time I hear it, I'm like, this is definitely not the weakest song on the album. So, yeah, the flow uh, the flow worked out. I'm pretty happy with it. It sounds pretty good. Absolutely.
2: And you have like multiple alternates for when we finally do uh, You get to see when we say it live, you know, when you finally, you know, I know here, June 15th, everything's going to open up. And I'm sure in Nashville, you know, the date's pretty similar too. And so I know you can finally be able to start booking tours. Yeah. And so in that aspect, like, have you thought of your live sequence? Because not to pull a Phil Toll, but, you know, I almost think that, you know, the intro tape could be the charity and then coming into Voices because it is that one-two punch. And uh, just not to do geek out too much, but, you know, I could envision Chris or somebody holding that bass note when you start the thing, like, doing the whole firecracker, like, you know, shoot them up thing, like, the whole Iron Maiden aspect. Yeah. It has that kind of feel to it, where it's like, oh, there's production right there, you know? It's, like, built into the song.
1: Yeah, I think the chariting is definitely, like, um, either the first song, and it's, like, intro tape, or it's the first encore, and then, like, the chariting is just the tape, uh, just the stems. Because it's going to be hard to, you know, the chariting is a very brooding... I was thinking about... um, the Pantera song, Shedding Skin, for that, which has a very creepy intro. with Phil and S- In fact, when 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 Paul was mixing that, so the, the the Chariting lyric, it's a very short song. It's not even really a song. It's like a little vignette. Is an Aleister Crowley poem called The Chariting. I remember telling Paul Moak, who mixed it, I'm like, bring the vocal lower. He was like, yeah, but if it goes too low, you can't hear it. I'm like, yeah, they don't need to hear it. No one needs to be able to, they just need to feel it. Because because Shedding Skin is Phil and Selmo kind of talking over the beginning. And it's like, I don't really know what he's saying. It's just really scary. So, yeah, a lot of people will not have heard Lord of the Vampires yet. But I do feel like that's the opening song. Definitely. And, and, it's, and it's six minutes long now. But I told Ethan, I said, dude, because uh, Lord of the Vampires is very stoner rock. There's a very, like, breathing intro. And then the solo section is almost like an anti-solo. It's just like, you know, it's like 80 bars of just, like, vibe. And I said, dude, you realize when we do this live, it's gonna be long it's gonna be way, <laughs> it's gonna be way longer and way scarier. And I think it's the first song. So who knows? Maybe it'll be like some psychedelic shit where we play Lord of the Vampires for 30 minutes and then we end with, you know, Evoco Sir and then we say goodnight. Who knows? It's the possibilities are pretty fun. But no, you're right. The set the set list will be different than the album. Because you're right, it's like the possibilities of it being live and then having to think about guitar changes. It's just fun to even think about how it could be a different experience to hear a, a forty five minute set that's not just the album front to front to back.
2: Absolutely, and then speaking of like uh, you know extending a set, say we were doing a, a an all headliner where there was no opening act, you know Viva ninety one to ninety three uh, Metallica Black Album tour, and so that you could almost do it like they did with Seek and Destroy, where you know like on the ninety four Shit Hits the Sheds tour where they just did that solo over and over and over in every variation of it, instead of you know him going out with the microphone. And so you can almost do that aspect where it's like, oh, let's just do every variation. Let's do another scale.
1: <laughs> well, what's really fun to me about Lord of the Vampires is it's all this like free time and it's all this like open bars of where something should be happening. But I love the idea that there are no guitar solos. It's just like, if you play a guitar solo, you're fired. Like that's the, that's the, that's the thing for that song. Like, it's just not about that. It's about like, it's about spinning a web and like creating this world. It's almost like a when i was telling um ethan when he was helping me do the drums i was like it just needs to be like y- hypnotic like you're just in a trance you're just bobbing your head and before you know it 10 minutes have gone by you know which i think is pretty cool that was pretty exciting to me and that's definitely a um an emotional template for the next album for sure because now that the volume 1 is out and i did i feel like i kind of climbed that hill and did it it's what i thought it might be, could have been and now Lunar Satan's real, like it's been birthed. It's a real baby, and I can, I can have fun in a different way now with it. That's what it feels like to me. Strangely,
2: yeah. I mean, you can definitely use a child reference having you know Nova. So I mean, now it's now uh, you know Lunar Satan's the toddler, and so you're going to see that aspect. You know, the yeah. influences are going to come in, just like I'm sure, uh, Nova, those
1: things happen too. And then before you know it, just like Ghost, we'll have a saxophone solo, and then all the trues will get upset. <laughs>
2: Well, speaking of things that make the trues upset, you know, you bring up the charity and the fact that your initial interpretation was Vinnie Paul and uh, Phil Anselmo. But I thought initially, when I first heard it, that you were making a, a homage to the um, podcast and kind
1: of bringing up our, our
2: friend Dave Mustaine, you know, uh, and doing that kind totally. of aspect of how I did the whisper thing because I was like, oh, that must be the Easter egg associated with this, you know?
1: The big Easter egg in the charitying is there's this big ooh that comes in. <sighs> Which is funny. It's just funny to think about me going, ooh. But it's uh, that's an homage to a song called Love, Hate, Love from Alice in Chains' Facelift, a deep cut. Oh, yeah. Facelift. Great, great song. It's basically the exact same ooh that Lane does. Um, there's Easter eggs in every song. I, I haven't gone through and written them out, but there's Easter eggs, mostly Metallica. Um, but there's a lot of Alice in Chains. There's a lot of, uh, there's some Van Halen in there. Uh, there's some David Lee Roth in there. Just all the shit I love. It's definitely a lot of horror elements.
2: So, one of the lyric references that I caught for Metallica was in Pig Fuck um, with the lyric, Through Dirty Window, the Gnashing of Teeth and Tongue, We're All Dead Pilgrims returning to Where We All Come From. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that's Dirty Window. Then yeah. the chorus, You're the Pig fuck Shit Out of Luck, obviously, is Hardwire. Yeah. Um, so. I knew you were capturing those aspects, but um, yeah, like you said, I think that would be great. Now that we have it in all physical formats, to kind of give everybody that listing of Easter eggs, you know, maybe through the Patreon uh, or through um, what you've done through Kickstarter as like an update to say, hey, you know, let's look for them all. I've given you enough time to find them. Like, can you catch them all, like Pokemon?
1: <laughs> There's a great bad uh, bad seed uh, homage in Mirage. Like there's that cough, which itself was an homage to a, a Sabbath song called Sweet Leaf. So that was a pretty fun thing to add in there. The, all, at every stage of that, with Paul, with mixing and with Sam, with mastering, they were like, you want that in there at the end? It sounds like a, a hiccup, you know? And I'm like, yes, that's very, very intentional to be in there. Absolutely. Yeah, I caught that.
2: And it's funny because I remember a lot of the the Metal Police and the Trollers were like, oh, that's the same rhythm, as, you know, Haas by uh, Rammstein. But I, mm-hmm. I was like, A, it's in a different key because you're playing in a different tuning. And B, you're playing another rhythm behind it. So there's multiple layers. So you've changed it enough to make it your own, you know? And I think having the harsh vocal, if that was maybe in clean vocal format... Maybe you would have made it have a bigger reference, but I I never envisioned it that way. You know, maybe the first time I heard it, I I heard that. But then when I heard it in totality, I definitely thought differently.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, when I when I was telling Chris and Ethan about the song, I was like, think do host. But it's bigger than that. I mean, Ramstein didn't invent going da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. They didn't invent that. Those knuckleheads didn't invent that in 1997 or whatever the fuck. That's one of my favorite lyrics on the album, and it's, I think, one of the coolest solos on the album. I was really proud of where that ended up. I mean, solo the solo compositions on the album. You know, I'm not the best guitar player in the world. I'm okay. I know my way around it. But when I was making that album, I was like, these solos need to be legit. Like, this can't just be me making a joke out of the. Like, I think I think it was tempting a little bit to be like, well, this whole project's jokey. You know, it's like started as a joke, so it's a joke. But I think it's I think when it started to really like get born. I felt a sense of responsibility to take it kind of seriously. And so when it came to like guitar time, you know, my professional job as a touring guitar player, I'm the guy that walks out on the catwalk and plays a big solo. I've never really thought about that in terms of my own shit. So on one hand, it was super fun. But on the other hand, it was a little intimidating. It was like, I really, I knew a lot of metal nerds like you or Ethan (laughs) or a lot of our listeners were going to be who love Pantera and Metallica and all the other ones were going to be listening to this crap and going, well, that solo is good or that solo is not good. So I was really happy. Uh, I I put a lot of TLC into that, and I really loved the Mirage ones. I I like the lyrics of that one a lot. Those lyrics were really creepy to me. I was pretty happy with those. And ironically, you can't hear what they are at all. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: I think the harsh vocal, I mean, I can't wait because of that stoner influence for volume two to see how you utilize that harsh vocal. I mean, because that, um, you know, uh, one of our probably collective favorite bands and in that's in that kind of stoner rock is Caius. And, yeah. you know, they they kind of sometimes use that in the background, whether it's Josh Hami or whomever it would be doing that in the background, but they buried it deep. And so yeah. how you'll be able to utilize that, I mean, I'm so excited to hear how how that aspect.
1: It's just nice to have that in the, in the tool belt. If you feel like it just needs something, it's cool to have that. You know, you were asking how I did it before. Yeah, I, I basically bring up like a, it's a pedal board that's for guitars with just a bunch of distortion pedals. I just turn them all on. And then when you have that blasted, I literally whisper, I mean, I whispered Mirage. I whispered the choruses to pig Fuck." But oh, because wow. it, because it's so gained up, and I, I honestly think there's something too about, I do think something might be coming through about it being whispered, but it's coming across so powerfully because of it's being manipulated. There's an interesting dynamic between those, interplay between those two things. Because I know it sounds like I'm screaming, but anyone who knows me knows I can't scream like that. That's insane. You know, like if you listen to any of the songs on Vampire, like I have like a really delicate tenor. So... It was fun finding a way to, to do that, you know, especially with a lyric like pig fuck, because the person that that song is written about, I can't think of a more scathing indictment. And that gave me a lot of joy. To do that to land that
2: yeah and i'd love offline to hear the whole story i know we probably aren't going to go into it now but like going back to the intro you know in evoco serpentum i obviously i think we all thought with that intro with the volume swells up um you were trying to do the initial template that metallica had between ride lightning and justice for all um, as well as replicated again during death magnetic um where it was it's a shortened uh, intro in comparison to how they would do it but still has that kind of volume swell up into beating into the initial guitar beat was that also intentional or is that just purely more of an afterthought
1: yeah that was intentional when i wrote the song i knew it was going to be the first song like when i started to get the bones of it and so there was an idea of like how do i you know how do i engineer the the top of the song to be the top of a record and yeah, I mean, it wasn't as ambitious as Battery or Fight Fire, like with a big, you know, a big thing. But it does, I think it does like usher you into, you hear the wind, it sounds ominous. You can almost look around and it's nighttime and it's midnight. And then you hear that wind and the song fades in. And when that song kicks in with that groove, with that uh, that's another kind of a toolish riff, lateralis kind of riff. Once once you're in the groove, it's what I wanted you to feel like was like, all right, here we go. You know, it's gonna be 40 minutes of of a satanic, a space satanic ride. It just kind of feels like the beginning of the story. It's pretty cool. I love it. And I love Hunter, my my great friend Hunter Barrow. I've known him for 20 years. He put so much time and effort into the artwork. Like I'm looking at the Evoco Serpentum now, and it's this pentagram with a snake on it and like all these symbols that tie into the lyrics he uh he ate a gummy one night and called me because he wanted to explain to me all the uh all the symbolism and all the you know all the there's a different pentagram for every song and he did all this on his own I didn't all I did was send him the lyrics and the album and uh that was a wild conversation Bobby I'll tell you that
2: Oh man, like, I would love to have been a fly on the welfare. Like that. there just... is
1: shit, there is shit in these like symbols that are so deep. The pig fuck one I'm looking at now, it has like a two over ten and an upside down cross. It has all these arrows and symbols. And it's it's all these old Masonic lodge symbols about where a lot of Masonic lodges would be like out in the woods somewhere because it was kind of like a secret group. And so these are all signs that you would see that were signs to let you know that you were lost. And that's – Pigfuck is about a very lost person. And so he – and I didn't tell him what Pigfuck was about. He just listened to it and read the lyrics. So it's all this like symbology that ties back to like masonry about symbols of being lost and like – I mean, in Blood and the Blood, he's got the coffins and yeah. all these different pentagrams mean different things. And in Come Dark Sun, it's this big symbol of an hourglass and the, and the sand's running out of the hourglass – I don't know. The, the the digital booklet, I hope people are able to check out because it's really cool. Definitely.
2: I really thank you again for giving us a Dropbox link with not only the Waves, but the digital booklet and, yeah. and the MP3 formats for whomever would want to listen to it in that format. Did I realize I said rain instead of wind because I was looking at my next question and thinking of Slayer. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think when I first heard Disper- Dispyramid, I hope I said that right, I immediately thought of Seeds of the Abyss, you know, and I thought of that awesome. Slayer and the Eastern year influence. So I that's actually why it's my favorite song, because, I, and I think we've heard that when you've done, you know, the Explore the Big Floor with season of the Abyss, I think you said it was your favorite, because it yeah. is my personal favorite uh, yes. Slayer record.
1: Absolutely. Because, you
2: know, Eerie, I, I think, you know, one thing people say with right brain and blood, and as a whole, like, I don't think the the rain is as eerie as people think it sounds. I feel like wind is much more eerie, and I've utilized wind in uh, quite a few records, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, I, I hard pan it left, or I just had it buried in the mix because I feel like wind is something people can evoke visually, um, you know, especially if you like tie it in with your production on live, of uh, having, you know, a, a fog machine go on when you have the wind going on, you know, and it's a cheap way for you to kind of evoke that uh, live as well. And so I, I I love that wind aspect. You know, I think it's something you could just, you know, have that uh, tape just on loop, you know, maybe for a few minutes while you're tuning or something like that, just because it evokes that kind of feeling. Yeah. Did you say that as a first
1: Metallica song. comes out to Ecstasy of Gold, a beautiful Ennio Morricone composition. We come out to five minutes of wind. But I, what I love about wind, though, is like it. Uh, it's a sense of something's coming. Rain is like sad, dark, it's raining, melancholy. Wind is more of like something's happening, something's coming, there's something impending. Like wind is more ominous. Definitely.
2: Like, uh, you know, I think one of my most famous rain references from one of my favorite albums was Disintegration by The Cure. Oh, uh, big you know, time. They use that rain reference, you know, in Prayer for Rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's still one of my favorite songs because A, the rain is in the title, but B, like the way the rain's actually very loud in that rain, you know, it's like that. Like A true, uh, you feel like you're in the UK when they recorded that album, you know, like they just took a microphone and actually physically recorded the rain while it was probably being recorded. Totally, feel like they're like, This
1: style. is what they're like, This is what the sad UK sounds like in 1988 or whenever that album came out. 89, Yeah, <laughs> this is just the sound of London at that time, for sure.
2: But yeah, speaking of that guitar harmony, um, in the chorus. Um, was that something where you just really, you know, try to affect with the sustain pedal um, to create that kind of ominous effect? Or is it just multi layered as part of the overdub process? In, in
1: Disappear Mid? In yeah. I think I layered it, yeah, just to give it some power. And I love all the, like, that's a very Alice in Chains. There's a song on the album, Dirt, that's actually the titular song called Dirt, that uh, that song is like an homage to. And I even thought about having, I asked Paul to run that main riff through an Ottawa because the song Dirt is on in Ottawa. And yeah. it just sounded, t- it sounded kind of too much like Dirt. So I was like, okay, take that off, that's that's too scary. But all the, there's like a lot of cool um, Allison Chains vocal stuff happening. And I like that song too, because uh, there's a big tempo change for the solo. It kind of takes a big left turn, which is something I've definitely learned from Metallica. kind of fun it goes from this kind of dark alice and chainsy thing to like kind of a more fun thrashy thing at the end i remember my friend edgar Baradas, who's a friend of the show a lot of people know edgar i remember he that was his his like reaction to me it was like oh i i love when it gets fast at the end you know that's how he said it and i'm like okay cool <laughs> edgar, if edgar likes how it gets fast at the end then i'm doing something right
2: Exactly. Like my my first interpretation, I I first noticed it was the third track. And I'm like, oh, this has got to be like the thing that should not be track, or the eye, of the holder track, the kind of ominous feeling, yeah, and that aspect. So I knew that was one of the Easter eggs. But you're right; they they have that aspect too, where like at the end of the thing that should not be, where they double up on the guitar, you know, and add that effect, where it just keeps going, you know, where the the chugging and the palm muting is just doubled up, you know, to make that kind of eerie feel.
1: Well, and I just think the lyric. I mean. I- you know, teeth sink in the sodom apple, fall into endless fathoms, disappear Middle on fire, white flame touch God, expire. That's just some bitchin' metal lyrics. Yeah. I was really, really proud of that. I loved that so much. I just thought if I had read that in liner notes, you know, if it was like the new, you know, the new anal vomit song, for example, uh, I just happened to look over and see my, my friend's anal vomit over here in my cassette collection. But <laughs> if I read that in a liner notes when I was 12, I would have been a fan for life because I just think it's, so evocative and strange and awesome, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking of like our quarantine covers, like how last year, you know, the us Patreon members were able to provide and I got a few songs
1: that, um,
2: you know, you guys had uh, agreed to, you know, cover like
1: REM and- uh, Yeah, and everybody, it was Everybody Hurts and the New Order song, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So both you and Ethan actually picked some of my selections. So I appreciate that. But I was thinking, you know, if we could reverse the roles and we could do a quarantine cover, I feel like what we would do, similar to what you had done um, with Dawn Patrol, is we would do a Dave Mustaine homage for the charity.
0: And I (laughs) feel like
2: if we ever... Now, I I put that into the world, and if we do keep this part of the, the interview in... Let's see if anybody uh, takes us up and gets some stems and let's see if we can get some voices down. (laughs) Maybe do it with Back to the Future or something.
1: That would be really funny to hear. I'm looking at the booklet now. Okay, the lyrics are in the charity. We were going to just leave them out. But yeah, they're here. So they're available. And I got that from uh, the the two Aleister Crowley books that I leaned on a lot for just inspiration. He has a book called The Book of Lies and a book called Book Four. And it's mostly, I don't know if any of you out there have ever read Aleister Crowley, but. It's pretty wild magic shit. Like, it's almost sort of un unreadable, but there's occasionally some really interesting dark poetry in his shit. So everyone go uh, go, go check that out. Yeah, I,
2: I learned about him through, through Cradle of Filth because obviously that's the, you know, Danny Filth's biggest influence. And I read a lot of his things just through that. And, yeah. Uh, You know, it's like uh, with Morrissey and uh, Oscar Wilde, you know, I became a fan of him and his writing through that because I didn't realize those were like just ripoffs of his actual words. Yeah, totally. So it's kind of funny in that aspect. But going to, I think, like the marketing aspect, um, one of the greatest things you did about this record is you gave us patrons five different demos from the album. So we got to hear basically half of the album before it came out with the Bocos Pentium, pyramid Mirage, Pigfuck, and We Ride the Skies. When you were writing the latter half of the album, did you take the feedback you received from the tracks to kind of influence your songwriting? I imagine that wasn't the case, but do you ever kind of consider that as part of your writing styles?
1: No. No, I mean, the the positive feedback was really encouraging, like definitely uh, made me feel like I was doing something that was resonating and on the right track. And it was funny and fun. And there was a lot of sort of energy wrapped up around like, oh, man, this was like a, just sort of a joke on the podcast. And now it's really happening. So there was, there was like, really kind of invaluable feedback in that way. But nothing that informed how I wrote anything. Because, you know, that album was just my permission to go into the dark dream where we're, you know, like so much of my writing is dependent upon external influence in a positive way, in a good way. And we're, if I'm co-writing with someone or I'm writing with an artist or I'm writing for my publishing company, we're all working together for a certain kind of goal. This is one of my only opportunities to just go into my own dark dream. So I did get feedback, like from, I mentioned that like I sent some shit to Brad Blazik or, you know, Ethan was helpful but in terms of like the creative vision, I think I I let people hear those just because I was excited about them. And everyone just seemed to like it. I didn't really get a lot of uh, feedback that would inform how I would move forward. You know what I mean? Exactly.
2: I feel like that's, uh, I was just curious if people were trying to play like quarterback or, you know, try to provide their, their two cents on some of that aspect. Obviously, it's you're the artist and you're, you know, you use this every day for a living. So I think it'd be hard for, I think, people to even approach you in that aspect because, literally you sell you create songs that people hear all the time you know and in all around the world so it's you know it's a different aspect in that
1: yeah and i th- i mean i think i think there is a potential for me to have like opened it up to that like what do you guys think what should i what should we do what would be cool but yeah that wasn't really on the table for this it's funny that you mentioned that we got an email today on our one of our last episodes uh i played my cover of mama said because it was a mother's day kind of esque episode and we got we got an email from a listener who told me how disappointed they were in my cover and that it wasn't my best work and that uh, they expected more and that they wanted me to <laughs> and that they wanted me to try again.
2: I mean, a you used piano instead of acoustic guitar. I mean, right away. I mean, that's, that's what really- I said. Yeah, I just like you just right there you just just continue that because you evoke so much more emotion using the piano over the acoustic the guitar. So I feel like, you know, they, they any of those um cover albums, they, they just can never say that because you you treat it differently, you know, you take the song and take it down to its bare essence and then utilize different instruments to make the,
1: the Well, and the I song. said that back to the person. I said, "You know, I I think it being piano driven rather than acoustic guitars, there's strings." I was like, "I I think I'm kind of happy with where it landed, but it was it was funny to have someone be like, "You can do better," you know. If anyone ever said to me about Lunar Satan," I don't even know how it, I, don't, I don't even know how to respond to it. You know, if you don't like it, you don't like it. But you know, if, uh, people have criticized like my singing voice before, and it's like, look, I when I open my mouth to sing, I can't change what it sounds like. It is what it is. And and honestly, the writing part of Lunar Satan" comes from that same. It's from the hip. I mean, it's it really is. Like if I'm trying to write a song for Carrie Underwood. And you know, my my publisher is like, hey, it needs to be more A, B, and C. I'm like, 104, copy that. Let's uh let's go back to the drawing board and make it more A, B, and C. But when it's Lunar Satan or Vampire, or when it's me opening my mouth to sing, when I'm doing a quarantine, when I'm covering everybody hurts for you, it's like, I can't change that. It's from the hip. And if it's from the hip for me, that's my guiding light. I would never change anything that came from the hip. these projects
2: absolutely then you're not explaining your true self you know not being a true artist if you have to emote that way so i I think that'll be interesting for volume two because i don't know if you're going to do the same thing where you'll release like half the album uh you know to patrons and then hear that aspect before they get to hear the whole album or just do like the old-fashioned you know three singles across the board and then you know then release it afterwards uh, digitally
1: I would really love to ne- to not say a single word about it and just drop it I would love to do yeah. that but I can't I can't really do that because I'm not Beyonce So the plan for volume 2 I mean I've already got the first single mixed and mastered it's done So the plan I think is to do a sing a single for 3 months or 4 months and then hopefully have the album done by Christmas So, so people can kind of get a taste because it is going to be different. It's going to be pretty different. Even Paul was telling me how different he thought it was. So, I think I'll just. I think I'll yeah. I'll I'll let people hear a few songs. And of course, patrons and like friends of mine and friends of the show, people that I know like it. They're going to get a bunch of shit first anyway, because I want to share it with people. You know, I'm proud of it. I like it.
2: Awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So, do you have any like if you could have. You know, unlimited tour budget and unlimited tour support uh, to recreate this album live. Do you like envision a backdrop or any type of, you know, um, usage of like a fog machine or any effects? uh, You know, if you you could be, you had like the budget of Ghost, for instance, and all their tour production that they use. Like, would you have a vision in your head when you could play this album live, like what you would like to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would love to be able to pay Satan to show up at every show. I don't know what his day rate is, but <laughs> I'd love to have him come, like, you know, blow some, uh, like, you know, do some Gene Simmons style, like shooting fire out of his mouth. But no, yeah, I mean, my, my, you know, if I could pay my friends what they're worth to come out live, and even if we were just on a on a, on a shoestring budget and opening for Bokasa or opening for whoever, you know, my dreams are small they start there. They start with me just being able to like afford to pay my friends what they're worth to make the album come to life. And then of course, like, yeah, if I could have my druthers for anything. Yeah. I mean, dude, like to me, the Lunar Satan project is like a film. So it's like the visuals, the vis, it's so ripe for amazing visuals. Uh, but ultimately I would really hope that we could, we could be in a club somewhere and the songs would just be powerful. I mean, I think that's kind of the story of Metallica is like, It's got to work at a grassroots level with just four guys playing instruments. And then if that's worth its salt, then you can continue to grow and you can add a lot of, you know, the song Master of Puppets is going to fucking kill whether or not they have little, uh, you know, hologram military crosses or not. I love the hologram military crosses and the, the animation of the guys walking in the background with the disposable heroes helmets and all of that. I love all the cylinders turning for fuel, but that song's gonna fucking rip without it. And that's what I hope the album would do. I just gotta, I just hope I can play it and sing it. Absolutely. That's
2: what I was gonna be, my tie in was like, uh, you know, for instance, like in Come Dark Sun, I think there's like a quartet um, and there's a lot of other instrumentation yeah. there. So would you just have tracks in the back yeah. and to, to be able to evoke that?
1: I, I uh, do, there. I do honestly think just because I come from the, um, I mean, almost everyone does this. I mean, I'm sure it's an L.A. thing, too, but I definitely come from the the Nashville thing of like, if you can get your stems, like if you're using your stems or playing to tracks live to cover up for the fact that you can't play or sing, then you're fucked. You'll never get away with it in the long game. But if you can play and sing and you're real, then you really can utilize tracks and being on a grid to really flesh out a performance. So yeah, I, if, if we were to perform come, dark sun, we would have the quartet in the tracks. Like I said before, the, uh, the charity would basically be a, an intro track, whether it's an encore or the first song, I might have some like of the, of the um, programming in there, maybe some of the BGVs, maybe just to be able to put our best foot forward, to deliver the songs to people i mean we're i'm not lunar satan is not the ramones lunar satan is a a delicate textured i mean i wish we were the ramones but we're not we're not a three chords in the truth band lunar satan is a a collage of dark dreams and if you want to present a collage of dark dreams to 100 people in a club uh you need to utilize all the technology that you can absolutely
2: i remember the first time i got to have in my ears uh you know the click track and then, like, you know, I used to always say, you know, in my monitors, just give me the kick because I always follow the kick and snare. Yeah. You know, that was my click track, you know, basically for me. And then when I finally, you know, with the being able to afford, you know, being able to have the click track of my ears, now I'm like, oh, I can have tracks, you know, I yeah. can play exactly like the album, exact tempo, and then we can modulate it if we want to go a couple of BPMs higher to, to adjust it. Like you said, if you have the stem, so you do, you know, you have all this technology available, you know, you record it, you produce it yourself. So... Why not take advantage? You know, it's pretty simple to
1: do. Yeah. And you can build, you can really build in a lot of spontaneity into that, you know, like if we did it with Lord of the Vampires, we would have a loose, you know, 80 bars in the middle. The drummer hits a little trigger when we need a four count to get back into the next chorus. So there's all sorts of ways to build in a lot of human possibility into it. It's really come a long way from the Milli Vanilli, you know, the tape fucking up in the background and they have to run off stage embarrassed, and one of the guys even commits suicide later because it was so humiliating. We've come a long way from that. You can build in a lot of really interesting moments with technology now. So I think my experience with that, my experience as a producer with Stems, I would be able to, and, and the guys that I want in the band, like Ethan, who knows how to, you know, Ethan knows how to run tracks. Ethan's been on that side of it, of the technology before. So I think we'd be able to do it in a way that didn't feel you know, like I'm just like I'm fucking Skrillex hitting Spacebar playing the Lunar Satan album. It would be real. I mean, the guitars are gonna be live and loud. They're gonna be amps on stage. I'm gonna be singing to the best of, of my ability. And uh, we're just gonna be using those things as just ways to heighten the experience. Kind of like the way that Kiss pumped in rockets going off and the sound of a, a stadium into their a live record, you know? They're like, you, they're like, you don't want to hear the what the real thing was. It was just <laughs> 10,000 kids excited about Love Gun or whatever. They're like, we made it sound like the end of the world. And that's why everyone loves that album.
2: Yeah, or like Ozzy's live album. I think totally. he did all the vocals, you know, in the studio. He didn't even use any of the original vocals. So I think it's, you know, if you, all you need is live guitar, like he said. And I think this would be a hard album to use Kempers on. I know economically that would be ideal. So that way you guys could tour, you know, in the smallest vehicle and have minimal, you know, backline that you'd have to bring. Maybe just use the club's black line. Um, but I feel like this is the album you need, like, you know, a full stack, you know, up on stage or something like that aspect, just to get that sustain going, you know, this would be a hard album to do with like, um, you know, like the Meshuggah thing would be the common thing where literally there's nothing on stage because it's all tied to their Pro Tools, the lights are tied to their Pro Tools, where everything is tied, you know, and it just, they like you said, spacebar and then everything plays, you know. And then they they add in extra time you know for getting drinks and things like that that's why they don't talk the entire time because they really don't have it planned and programmed to say a word in between, yeah.
1: yeah, well, I can tell you this, as long as lunar Satan roams the earth, we will have real amplifiers on the fucking stage. I can promise you that that's a lunar Satan guarantee, Bobby awesome,
2: yeah, we're so looking forward to hearing it live. um I know we're running a little late, so I think i'll I'll try to make this the last question, sure, getting more to like uh this one maybe more personal. But I, for me personally, um, I've noticed on the show, you know, and sometimes even our own Metal Beer Podcast family says it, they they make this thing about the Southern accent in kind of a derogatory format. But I think, I'm not sure if I've ever told you this before, um, but like I worked in, in Huntsville, Alabama for three years, so I know Alabama pretty well, mm-hmm. you know, even though growing up here in Southern California, I really liked it there. You know, I liked how... It, people would say oh they're true natured and they're kind and sweet but then behind their back they'd say bad things about you and i did learn about some of that kind of narrow-mindedness that you kind of speak about that did happen but i never would see it in front of my face so i never believed that aspect mm-hmm. but you know there's that southern rock influence in the music and i wonder if that was intentional or not you know like was corrosion conformity or crowbar an influence to you you know, because Louisiana is so close to Alabama, like were you really exposed to all of that? Because for me, right, I heard it through Down because of Phil Anselmo, you know, and then I found out about Crowbar, obviously through Down, Persian Accord, through Down. Everything was through Down, right? They were the conduit.
1: Yeah, none of those bands came through. Maybe, Maybe a little bit of COC, but not Crowbar, not Down. I like those bands, but I, you know, I don't do the hard time with them. Like I do really hard time with the bands I love, like, I'm insane, you know, like I'm insane. When I say that other than my family, music's all I have, I just really mean it. Like I I just live it and breathe it and it's all I have. It's saved my life. And so a lot of things come through. Those bands don't, not yet. There's, a, there's always the possibility that uh, I'm going to do some crazy time with Crowbar when I'm 40, who knows. <laughs> um, but I do think there is something um, in the Lunar Satan album that is tied to the geography of being from the South. Obviously the little twinkle in the eye, the little tongue in the cheek with the satanic themes with being from the Bible belt. Um, yeah. I myself was very religious for a long time. Like all of that, there's a lot of theology subtext in it and uh, a lot of winking at this culture that I was very much born into and raised in. I, I have more peace about the South than I maybe did 10 years ago. I'm from Alabama. I live in Tennessee. I had my daughter here. I mean, I'm li- we're likely going to make our stand here. And there's so many things about it in terms of um, religious and political ideology that are hard for me, but I accept it more. And I do think some of that Southern, there is something There is something to me Southern about Lunar Satan that comes through for me, but maybe it's just because I know the whole story. I don't know. I don't really talk Southern. I don't really, you know... I grew up on Leonard Skinner, but I don't think there's a lot of Leonard Skinner sounding things on the album. But I don't know, maybe definitely C.O.C. There's a lot of Alice in Chains on the album, definitely. And I think that the way that that ties into the southern thing is when you're a kid in the South. I mean, I went to high school on a cow pasture. You know, I I grew up with the symbolism. I grew up with rebel flags everywhere. My you know family members saying the N word like it was like they were talking about a can of Coke. And I think for a lot of people, a lot of kids like me, Metallica or Alice in Chains, all these albums, they were our only way out of that. So I got this band in Seattle up in almost as far away from Alabama as you can get in the U.S., (laughs) you know, the Pacific Northwest. And that was my door out. And uh, so I think I think in addition to sonically there's a there's a spirituality of Lunar Satan. I can't ever not be from the South because that's where I'm from. But there is something interesting about I think what I hear sometimes when I hear it is a kid trying to get out, and this music is a is a portal. So I I don't know if that's what you were asking, but no, uh, that was perfect. I haven't thought about it in that way really until I just started talking about this. But yeah, there's the, these records are portals out of nightmares and whatever your nightmare is. It doesn't you don't have to be from the south to have a fucking nightmare? I've I've been to Detroit, <laughs> I know what's there. Um, Jk, love all my people in Michigan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it, it's escapism. You're absolutely right.
1: Yeah, it's just a way out. It's a way to explore something different. I mean, having a band called Lunar Satan would have been extremely taboo. You know, when I was in high school, just be, and even even you and I talked off the air before we started the show about even like the uh, you know we're all dealing with like our spouses and our moms and dads seeing us wear the lunar Satan t-shirt. And there's even something about it. So like, "Oh, you are going to wear that? <laughs> and I think I told you before, I was like, there's something about it that like excites me because uh, it's, it's just dealing in the taboo. And that's what Freddy Krueger did. That's what that bus scene did when I was a kid. My first memory is seeing uh, the scene in Nightmare on Street one where his, ha- his arms are really long. Oh
2: yeah, I did get the two mixed up. That was actually the scene I was thinking of too. How scary
1: is that, right? So, oh god, yeah. There's yeah, I mean, and then just you know, growing up in such a kind of religiously oppressive environment, and all of that is teased out in the album in one way or another. And I think that's just going to get more interesting as the as the albums go on. As I keep writing through it, I'm just writing through it. It's this
2: common theme that I've been thinking about as I've been trying to write, you know, the script for my my own uh, scripted podcast. Um, that I'm trying to launch, you know, and hopefully, you know, I've been talking to Ethan about helping me on that because he's very familiar with the topic. Mm-hmm. But it was something that I bring up about growing up in Southern California. It's like, you don't choose where your parents settle. And for me, you know, how you felt out that was actually how I felt in Orange County. You yeah. Know, like people, when I went to college in DC thought, you know, my life was like the OC, which as you know, is not even filmed in Orange County. It was filmed in Hermosa Beach in, in LA County. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it wasn't even an aspect, I'm like, not everybody's white and rich, you know, like, clearly, uh, I'm a, a case in that, you know, I grew up, you know, middle class, and, and you know, obviously not white, <laughs> in mm-hmm. that aspect. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to escape it, you know, I thought, oh, it'd be a fresh start. And I learned, you know, everybody kind of feels that way, no matter where they grew up, it could be a paradise, like you could have grown up in Hawaii, or wherever, you know, uh, you know, like where uh, Kirk Hammett lives now. Um, and think, you know, this is, I'm on an island, you know, this is a nightmare, I want to get out, I want to go to the mainland, you know, or something like that, and so we all want that kind of rebellion and then we learned you know, as I migrated back to where, you know, I grew up, I'm only now a few miles from where I grew up, you know, I've kind of migrated all the way back now from, you know, living in the city, um, is that aspect on, you know, it, it does influence you in your background, even at a subconscious level. You just don't realize that your experiences and everything like that. And I appreciated my time in Alabama and everything. You know, food was delicious. <laughs> yeah. You know, Hush puppies and all that stuff. And, you know, all the stereotypes, I always felt bad when people would make stereotypes about people's access. Like they use that term fixin, I remember. And people would, you know, people, we'd be coming in from bigger cities, like me from DC when I was living there, or flying in elsewhere. And they'd be like, what does what fixin mean, you know? Like someone, I remember one time someone said, you know, they were trying to fix a, I was working for NASA at the time. We were trying to fix one of their computer systems and they were saying, you know, oh, I'll, I'm fixing to fix that. <laughs> and then we didn't understand what that meant. They were like, well, have you fixed it or are you going to fix it? Like, what does that mean? And, you know, I, I was like, that, that's just their terminology. Like it's, I, I understood it. Like it just sounds derogatory when people, you can't judge somebody the way they grew up. That, that's how they understood that, how to I respond to that?
1: <laughs> so well, my travels taught me a lot. There's a really great Mark Twain quote that I'll butcher now, but it's something to the effect of, and you can all look it up, it says the anecdote to bigotry is travel. So whatever you're whatever you were born into, whether it's Flint, Michigan, Southern California, New England, Deep South, Texas, whatever the fuck, you know, you have your preconceived ideas about the world. And and uh Twain's whole thing was like, traveling will cure that. It's the anecdote to that. And one of the things I learned in my travels was there are rednecks everywhere, you know? (laughs) Now, we would go to concerts in maybe Louisiana. We would drive to Mississippi. Of course, we vacationed in Florida. We would go see shows in Atlanta. We'd go see shows in Louisville. Rednecks everywhere. We're in the South. But when I started touring, I mean, there are rednecks in Northern California. And in fact, not only are there rednecks there in Sacramento, they're scarier than the rednecks I knew. When I started meeting rednecks in Michigan, rednecks in Buffalo, those are some scary rednecks. So it's cool. It's like it's a leveling thing. Like it's it's a leveler. And uh like people think they Yeah, we have the redneck stereotype, right? In the South. But I think what's cool about your story, Ethan's story, who's also a Southern California cat, and a lot of people in our in our world and our family. Uh, is that the the music gave us the courage to deal with it and find our way through it, and then, like you kind of ended up back there i 'm still three hours from where I grew up, and uh, i 'm no longer wanting to run to the other end of the earth like I think all of these records and all this music and all the people that it brings into your orbit because of your love for it give you the, an education and a courage to go back home and deal with it and be home I think it 's really cool it 's really powerful, and to make an album like lunar satan it 's just to almost be in the lineage of that, maybe not as influential as master of puppets but to just be in the lineage to be to be doing what that record did for me to just be trying to do it feels like a gift that's actually what's spiritually important about the whole project your project my project about any creative project is that the spiritual lineage of that you're taking part in the thing that that saved you that's what it is the end